past few uh, Sundays, we've been studying the life of Elijah, so let me invite you today to turn to 1 Kings chapter 17, if you're using a Bible in the pews, it's on page 299, 299 of these Bibles, 1 Kings chapter 17, and before I uh, read beginning verse 17, as you're turning there, let me remind you or uh, uh, tell you of what's gone on up to here. Elijah was a a prophet, really the first great prophet. He lived in the ninth century B.C. And the context of of what we're going to see is what's happening within the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, is that it is now at a point of division. And so it has been divided into north and south, two different nations. North was called Israel, the south was called Judah. And Elijah came what was called during the time of the kings for the the northern kingdom uh, over many years had 19 kings and the southern kingdom had had 20 kings and almost none of them were any good. Uh, None of the kings in the north were any good and only eight in the south of the 20 were any any good. So we we come, Elijah arrives at a time when a man named Ahab is on uh, on the throne in the north, in Israel. And he's, he's described in the previous chapters being he exceeded his father and all the kings who came before him in his wickedness and in idolatry. And his wife was, a, was named Jezebel. It was a diplomatic marriage. Jezebel was from a nation to the north called the Phoenicians. And they worshipped a god called Baal, the god of nature, and uh, the queen goddess Asherah. And so it was a diplomatic marriage made between Ahab's father and the king of Phoenicia. And they live there now in the northern kingdom in Israel. And Elijah arrives in the opening verse of chapter 17, the opening two verses. And he basically says, even we have no introduction for Elijah, no background material, no genealogy. And he just says, there's going to be no rain except by my word. And then right after that, we saw last week that God tells Elijah to leave and to travel north, northeast, about 100 miles, and that God would provide for him. And so he he goes and he lives by this brook, this brook Cherith. And for a year he stays there and God supernaturally provides for him, brings food by the ravens and the water Uh, water there from the brook and so for over a year he's there and then the brook dries up and God tells him to get up and to move in verse 8 and he sends him to a city called Zarephath Zarephath it's a city in Phoenicia to the north now what's strange there's two things that are strange about this one is that God would send him to Zarephath which was in the middle of the country of the idol worshippers And Zarephath was right near the city of Sidon, which was Jezebel's hometown. So God sends him there, away from Israel. And the second part that's strange is he tells him to live uh, in the house of a widow. And it's strange because widows would have been the neediest of the needy in a time of famine. And so when he arrives, it tells us in verses 12, 13, and 14 of of this chapter, this widow is there. And he, she is preparing what she, she's gathering sticks to build a fire to prepare what she says will be the final meal before for her and her son, and basically meaning then there'll be no food and we will starve to death. 
And Elijah says, prepare the food for me, which seems kind of cruel, but then he says, don't be afraid, for the Lord will provide. And so over verses, the next verses 8 on up uh, to about verse 16, we see that God miraculously provides for this household with meal in a jar each day and oil in a bottle. So there is food and water for this household, this widow, her son, and this prophet named Elijah. And after a period of at least a year, tragedy strikes. And that's what we find here beginning in verse 17 of chapter 17, verse 17. Hear God's word. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And, he, and she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned for ki by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we come before your word asking that you would nourish our hungry souls. You say we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of the most beautiful weather that people can enjoy ordinarily occurs during the hours just before a hurricane hits the shore. And the reason, I am told, is that the rotation of the giant storms clears the skies ahead. I witnessed this firsthand years ago when my family, extended family, was at the beach in Panama City. And my brother-in-law and I were were out on the beach at midnight fishing and we had been watching the weather and there was to be a tropical storm that may come near but was to miss where we were. Uh, as it was, it was not a tropical storm, it was a hurricane and it hit almost exactly where we were and for that reason we had decided to stay. If we had known what was going to happen we would have left earlier. But at midnight uh, just a few hours before the storm actually hit, we were on the beach fishing, and it was a moonlit night. The water was uh, flat as it could be. It was calm. It was beautiful. We could see clouds moving quickly through the sky, but we didn't feel any wind there where we were standing. You would never have known during such a calm time that at 4 a.m. it would be terrifying with what we went through. Uh, I don't ever want to go through a hurricane again. Uh, though Steve Brown says that if you have to choose between an earthquake or a hurricane, choose the hurricane because it gives you more time to repent. <laughs> I don't want either one of them. For this widow, this 
period of knowing and experiencing God's grace through the never-empty jars of oil and flour was the calm before the storm. I mean, for a time, um, a long time, many months at least, maybe as long as more than a year, uh, this household had experienced peace when death had been expected. She thought they were going to starve to death. And now, when peace is expected, death comes. And so we learn that exercising faith is not something we do just once. Oh, I remember that time on that day or that week I had to exercise faith. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says we walk by faith instead of sight. It's being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. It's by faith that Hebrews says women receive back their dead raised to life again. That's Hebrews 11 without question a reference back to this incident in Elijah's ministry. So as verse 17 begins, it says after this, meaning after the many months of them experiencing God's provision, the son becomes sick, very sick. And he grows worse and worse ultimately until he dies. Now I want to right now make a verbal parenthesis. So from your side, just visualize that. This is a parenthesis that really has nothing to do with the text. But I feel it ought to be said. This is not a passage on how to deal with grief. We can go to other places in the Bible. Romans chapter 8, John chapters 14 and 15, the book of James, and many of the Psalms and find that. So th this is not a real instructive passage on how to deal with loss. There are other passages for that. And I am keenly aware that in this congregation, many of you have gone through what this widow goes through. You've lost a son or a daughter or more to death. Now, I want to recommend a book that I've been perusing but reading more intently in the past several days. Now, I'm usually hesitant to recommend any book that I've not read all of it, but so far, so good. And it was highly recommended to me by a pastor an, uh, an Anglican pastor in Savannah whom I have the greatest respect for and is a lifelong friend. And he said that a Sunday school class in his book, he told me this last fall, they had studied this book. It's called A Grace Disguised. It's only about that, that big and about that tall. A Grace Disguised, How the Soul Grows Through Loss. A Grace Disguised is by Jerry Sitzer. I'll put the link on pastorchipmiller.com later in the week if you want to look at it. Anyway, here's what the book is about. Here's why I'd recommend it. Here's why it's different from other books. I've never seen anything quite like this. The author experienced a horrendous loss. Uh, in 1991, he and his wife and his other children and his mother had been ministering on an Indian reservation in Idaho, and they were doing like a vacation Bible school, and they were driving back a long way on a very deserted road, and they were hit head-on by a drunk driver going 85 miles an hour. Uh, in the accident, the driver of the other car was killed. The driver's wife, who was pregnant, was killed. Uh, Jerry Sitzer's mother, his wife, and his young daughter were killed. Three generations wiped out. And he began to keep a journal of his feelings and all he was going through, and he kept that journal for three years. And he had no plans to do anything with that journal except 
for his own record. But as he went back and read it later and he showed it to other friends, they said, you really should publish this. Other people need to read this. So it's not an instructive book on how to deal with grief. It's not a book like how to deal with pain and suffering from a theological standpoint. There are other great books out there for that purpose. It's really his experience, so I commend that to you just on dealing with any kind of loss, uh, a grace disguised. Okay, back to the text. Now we just close the princess, all right? Back to this. The widow in her pain strikes out at the only person near her, and that's Elijah, verse 18. What have you against me, O man of God? She personalizes what's happened. You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and, my, and to cause the death of my son. This is a strong comment and a strange comment about her guilt. We have no idea. We're given no idea what she's thinking about. What is this sin? What is this guilt? But apparently it was something that had happened in her past and now in this tragedy she's thinking, I'm being paid back through the death of my son because of something that I did. She feels hopeless, she feels condemned, and she interprets her son's death as judgment for which she is responsible. So here Elijah, the messenger of God, becomes God's representative of that judgment. She feels hopeless and condemned. Now any of us in ministry that have walked into tragic situations have experienced this typically. Uh, we're, we name the name of God and some Sometimes people will say, they'll turn to us as though we're God and say, why has God allowed this to happen? What is God doing? You know, and there's no answer for that. But I realize they're, they're not directing that at me. They're directing that at God. And I, me as a pastor, just seen as like Elijah was in that situation. So we see the frailty of our human existence. Every one of us is subject to sickness and death, and we live every day knowing that that's our eventual, eventually what awaits us. Um, I made this comment, and I hope it wasn't misunderstood at the first service. I wish Mother's Day wasn't on Sunday. Now, I was informed by one of my Chinese brothers here that in Sunday school that this is an international holiday. It's the second Sunday in May in China as well. But because there's so many, there are people that miss church because it's Mother's Day. And they feel, I can't handle it, you know, that, that, that there's emotional harm there, hurt there. Uh, and I really was ambivalent about preaching on this passage, but I'm working through Elijah. And when I saw a few weeks ago that, uh-oh, this passage falls on that day, I just thought, well, I'll just trust God's providence and I'm just going to keep pressing on through uh, with this series. But they, people avoid church on this day sometimes because it... it brings pain to them about their own deceased mothers. Uh, but this story is not about death. You say, well, it looks like it's about death. No, it's about the power of God over death. After this woman's son dies, she immediately moves from a state that you'd call disbelief. Unbelief is when we say, well, I just don't believe that. I don't believe God exists, or I don't believe the Bible, or I don't believe in the gospel, or I don't believe what Jesus did. What? That's unbelief. Disbelief is when we do believe, but it's kind of like, I can't believe God did this. I'm not doubting that there's a God. I don't think she doubted there's a God. But her disbelief is, why? And it must be because of 
my fault over whatever sin she has in mind. She's in disbelief about the goodness of God. And so she's filled not only with grief, she's filled with resentment. Now, it's easy to understand this woman. She had lost everything when she lost her son. In no way do I read this with any kind of uh, pride over this woman. We understand. She lost her closest companion, her only family member, her security as a widow. A.W. Pink was a lived in Australia the latter part of his life, and he wrote a, a little magazine, newspaper-type thing called Studies in the Scriptures. And then many of those were put together and made into books, and one is called The Life of Elijah. It's about that thick, whole entire book on the life of Elijah. And he has this great comment of observation about what she was experiencing about the son. In him, the, the son that is, in him all her affections were centered, and with his death... All her hopes were destroyed. So in him, all her affections were centered, and in his death, all her hopes were destroyed. And it happened so suddenly. There they'd been starving, and God provides, and now her son dies. So things had gone from bad to good to worse. It all seemed unfair. Elijah, now we move to Elijah apparently moved with compassion himself. He doesn't argue with her. He doesn't try to defend God's ways. There's, there's none of that. There's a time for silence, and tragedy is typically it. I can tell you often the best thing we can do is have what some refer to as the ministry of presence, just to be there, not try to say anything, and certainly not try to give explanations and interpretations for events we don't understand um, I was sitting with a person some time ago. He had heard me do a Bible study from the book of Job, and he said about a mutual friend of ours whose father had dropped dead very suddenly of a heart attack. He said, so based on what I heard you say about Job, you would say to her after her dad died, well, it was God's will. God can use this for good. God, I said, no, I wouldn't say that. I said, I wouldn't say anything. I would be there. Say, I'll pray for you. Pray for God's help. We love you. Say, I wouldn't try to explain anything. That's the last thing I would try to do. Well, I'm in good company then with Elijah. He doesn't try to explain anything. He carries a body's lifeless body. We read 19 and 20 to this upper room, this upper chamber where he's staying. He lays him on the bed and he cries out to God. And I imagine it was a crying out probably is shouting out, Lord, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? He's in dismay too. He's surprised at what's happened. He is deeply personally involved with his family. You can imagine after living there for over a year, he loves these people. So he stretches himself upon the boy, body to body, arm to arm, leg to leg. Why he did this, we're not told. But it, he cries out, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And so he's very specific in what he prays for. Now here's the interesting part. Up to this point in the Bible, there's never been a resurrection of somebody from the dead. There is no mention of anybody that had died being brought back to life. So from all indication, and, and my best educated guess is, he's praying for something he had never seen. 
he never even heard about. But he believed God could do it. And it says in verse 22, God listened to the voice of Elijah. The life of the child came into him. Elijah picked him up, and he goes, and can you imagine coming back down? See, the words he said, see, your son lives. Who knows what the emotions would have been like, the celebration in that house. And in verse 24, when she says, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. If you want to know the main theme here in Elijah's ministry in chapter 17 and as we go forward, you can take a Bible with a highlighter and if you start highlighting the number of times it says the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord, and uh, as God said, it's just all through this. The emphasis, the main character here is the word of the Lord. And Elijah is his messenger. So her response is the climax of the chapter. Now she's gained insight through this terrible experience. She had seen that Jehovah is reliable and trustworthy. He's not like the God of her nation, the God of Baal, who is capricious and unpredictable. God has proven himself trustworthy and faithful. Now, in conclusion, but it's going to be about an eight-minute conclusion, I want to give you some lessons about trials. Lessons about trials. One, they are not always a result of our sin. There is no indication here that the death of her son was, had anything to do with her. Uh, the death of the son is a test of faith, and it was not due to the sin of anyone involved from what we know. We know at times from Psalm 32 that there are physical consequences uh, from lack of confessing our sin. We know that the Bible says God disciplines those he loves. James 5, chapter 5 says sometimes sin, says sickness sometimes is a result of sin. And so when we go through trials, health trials, circumstantial trials, it's proper to examine ourselves. And don't spend a whole lot of time on it, but take a glance and say, Lord, is there something here I need to repent of? But not all trials are, are a result of sin. Second, your trials are never just about you. The widow began with a very limited interpretation of the trial. The sickness and the death she interprets through her own experience is something, she says, because of my sin and guilt, that this has now been brought about. But it's really about a whole lot more. Our interpretation of events will always be very restricted, very limited, not only because of our finite minds, but the locale. And we can't be in more than one place at once, and we can't know all that, that happens. Somebody quoted to me, and I don't know where they got it, but it sounds just like him, so I assume it's true that John Piper said, at any moment, God may be doing a thousand things in your life, and you might be aware of four or five of them. God is working in many, many ways through everything which happens now and in the future. And so we are told in the book of James that as we go through trials, we should ask for wisdom. Lord, help me to be wise. Help me to have wisdom in this difficult event or season. And we will probably never know the full answer. <clears throat> Many of us here are old enough to remember back in 1993 that there was an Amtrak train traveling from Los Angeles to Miami. And in the middle of the night at 
went off. It hurled off a trestle in a bayou in southern Alabama. And it, it, it caught fire. It sank into 30 feet of black water. There in the middle of the night, away from cities, it, it was a terrible, terrible, worst train accident, one of the worst Amtrak train accidents that had ever happened. Now, all 47 people died. And theologian R.C. Sproul and his wife Vesta were on that train. And in fact, I'm told he still has back problems uh, as a result of injuries from that night. And obviously, they, they survived. And sometime later, I can't remember if it was months or years later, I read an interview in a magazine with him, and they were talking about that train crash. And at the end of the interview, he was asked the question, why do you think God allowed this to happen? And I loved his answer. Here is this Ph.D. and brilliant theologian, and his answer was, I know enough theology not to attempt to answer that question. He said, I, no, I can't give an answer for why God allowed this to happen. So, once again, I urge all of us to be very careful of trying to interpret the trials in your life at times. Be very careful and be extremely careful when you try and interpret the trials in other people's lives or when you try to give meaning when you just don't know what the meaning is. Second, nothing comes into our lives except by his hand which he will use for our glory, for his glory and our ultimate good. Uh, so the lesson here was not just for this widow in Phoenicia, but it's for all of God's people. It simply testifies that in the face of God's seemingly absurd, contradictory ways, he will show himself faithful to his people at the end of their trial. Listen to this verse that when God commends um, to Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy 8, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end? Let me read it again. Who fed you in the wilderness with manna that he might humble you and test you? God intentionally humbled you and tested you that he might do you to do you good in the end. Deuteronomy 8.16. Sometimes it's a testimony like that is all that can keep us sane. And then in Genesis 18, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Second part of the conclusion is it's a lesson about death, the biggest trial of all. Um, this story is telling us that Jehovah is not only Lord over daily provisions, he's Lord over life and death itself. And nothing can pose a threat to God's supremacy. We have a very similar story to this, almost a parallel story in the New Testament with Jesus. In Luke chapter 7, we read how Jesus goes to a town called Nain, N-A-I-N, Nain. And as he draws near to the gate of the town, there's a, wet, uh, there's a funeral procession coming out. A man is being carried who's died and in some sort of pallet casket. And his mother is there. She's a widow, and she's grieving. And there's a considerable crowd of people from the town with her. They're proceeding out of the gate as Jesus is going in. And... And Jesus gives a word, young man, I say to you, arise. And he's resurrected from the dead. 
Now, there are remarkable similarities in both these stories. Both involve widows who are grieving. Both involve widows whose only son has died. Both involve miracles in that the dead are brought back to life. Now, when the people of Nain saw this happen, it tells us in Luke, that fear seized them all and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. However, there is one huge difference between these two stories, between these two miracles. Elijah cries out for God's help in bringing the boy back to life. But Jesus just says the word, Young man, I say to you, arise. You see the huge difference. Jesus wanted all that crowd to see that resurrection power rested in him. Elijah was a prophet. He was God's messenger. But he did not raise the boy from the dead. Jesus, unlike Elijah, never sinned. Jesus lived and died finishing his course, taking judgment on himself instead of pouring it out on those who deserved it. He was raised from the dead and is now interceding for us, it says in Romans 8 and Hebrews 7. He was and he is our prophet and our priest and our king. So the story of life being returned to the widow with Elijah, to her son, is a sign. It's a hint. It's a prophecy of things to come. It's a hint of the words of Jehovah in Revelation 1.18. I am the living one and I have the keys of death and Hades. So, believer, if you're following Christ today, if you're trusting in him, you need to know that not even death can place you beyond the grip of his hand or the sound of his voice or the touch of his power. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we've never seen anybody resurrected from the dead, uh, and yet we look back and we read and we hear and we see the testimony and the changed lives that have come down through history after Christ was raised. And we thank you that you promise that if we believe in him that, that we will have resurrected bodies one day. Uh, to live with you forever. Uh, we pray for great faith. Help us not to move quickly from day to day, from faith to disbelief when we go through trials, but to seek wisdom uh, from you in the midst of those. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.